0: chapter 35 of the bride of lamermoor this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by julian hendry the bride of Lammermoor* by sir walter scott chapter 35 whose minds so marbled and his heart so hard that would not when this huge mishap was heard To the utmost note of sorrow set their song, To see a gallant with so great a grace, So suddenly unthought on, so overthrown, And so to perish in so poor a place, By too rash riding in a ground unknown. Poem, in Nisbet's Heraldry, Volume 2 We have anticipated the course of time To mention Baclaw's recovery and fate, that we might not interrupt the detail of events which succeeded the funeral of the unfortunate Lucy Ashton. This melancholy ceremony was performed in the misty dawn of an autumnal morning, with such moderate attendance and ceremony as could not possibly be dispensed with. A very few of the nearest relations attended her body to the same churchyard to which she had so lately been led as a bride, with as little free will, perhaps, as could be now testified by her lifeless and passive remains. An aisle adjacent to the church had been fitted up by Sir William Ashton as a family cemetery, and here, in a coffin bearing neither name nor date, were consigned to dust the remains of what was once lovely, beautiful, and innocent, though exasperated to frenzy by a long tract of unremitting persecution. While the mourners were busy in the vault, the three village hags, who, notwithstanding the unwanted earliness of the hour, had snuffed the carrion like vultures, were seated on the through and engaged in their wonted unhallowed conference. Did not I say, said Dame Gourlay, that the braw bridal would be followed by as braw a funeral? I think, answered Dame Winnie, there's little bravery at it. "'Neither meat nor drink, "'and just a wheen silver tippences to the poor folk. "'It was little worth while to come "'say far a road for say small "'profit, and us say frail.' "'Out wretch,' "'replied Dame Gourlay. "'Can all the dainties they could gi' us be half so sweet as this "'hour's vengeance? There "'they are that were capering on their "'prancing nags four days since, "'and they are now gangin' as "'dreech and sober as ourselves the day.' They were all glistening wi gowd and silver, they're now as black as the crook. And Miss Lucy Ashton, that grudged when an honest woman came near her, a tade may sit on her coffin that day, and she can never scunner when ye croaks. And Lady Ashton has hell-fire burning in her breast by this time, and Sir William, with his gibbets and his faggots and his chains, how likes he the witcheries of his ain dwelling-house! "'And is it true, then,' mumbled the paralytic wretch, "'that the bride was trailed out of her bed "'and up the chimney by evil spirits, "'and that the bridegroom's face was wrung round ahint him?' "'Ye needna care wha did it or how it was done,' said Ailsie Gourley, "'but I'll uphaud it for nae stickit job, "'and that the lairds and leddies ken weal this day.' "'And was it true?' said Annie Winnie, sin ye ken say muckle about it, that the picture of old Sir Malice Ravenswood came down on the haw floor and led out the brawl before them all. Nah, said Ailsie, but into the haw came the picture, and I ken wheel how it came there, to gee them a warning that pride would get a-faw. But there's as queer a ploy comers as ony they that's gone on even now in the burial vault yonder. Ye saw twa mourners, wi crape and cloak, gang down the steps pair and pair. What should ail us to see them? said the one old woman. But ye did not see, said Ailsie, exulting in her superior observation, that there's a thirteenth among them, that they ken nothing about, and if old freights say true, there's yin o' that company that'll no be lying for this world. But come awa, comers, If we bide here, I'se warrant we get the way to whatever ill comes of it. And that good will come of it, naenie them need ever think to see. And thus, croaking like the ravens when they anticipate pestilence, the ill-boding Sibyls withdrew from the churchyard. In fact, the mourners, when the service of interment was ended, discovered that there was among them one more than the invited number and the remark was communicated in whispers to each other. The suspicion fell upon a figure which, muffled in the same deep mourning with the others, was reclined almost in a state of insensibility against one of the pillars of the sepulchral vault. The relatives of the Ashton family were expressing in whispers their surprise and displeasure at the intrusion, when they were interrupted by Colonel Ashton, who in his father's absence acted as principal mourner i know he said in a whisper who this person is he has or shall soon have as deep cause of mourning as ourselves leave me to deal with him and do not disturb the ceremony by unnecessary exposure so saying he separated himself from the group of his relations and taking the unknown mourner by the cloak he said to him in a tone of suppressed emotion "'Follow me!' The stranger, as if starting from a trance at the sound of his voice, mechanically obeyed, and they ascended the broken ruinous stair which led from the sepulchre into the churchyard. The other mourners followed, but remained grouped together at the door of the vault, watching with anxiety the motions of Colonel Ashton and the stranger, who now appeared to be in close conference, beneath the shade of a yew-tree in the most remote part of the burial-ground to this sequestered spot colonel ashton had guided the stranger and then turning round addressed him in a stern and composed tone i cannot doubt that i speak to the master of ravenswood no answer was returned i cannot doubt resumed the colonel trembling with rising passion that i speak to the murderer of my sister you have named me but too truly, said Ravenswood, in a hollow and tremulous voice. If you repent what you have done, said the colonel, may your penitence avail you before God. With me it shall serve you nothing. Here, he said, giving a paper, is the measure of my sword and a memorandum of the time and place of meeting, sunrise to-morrow morning, on the links to the east of Wolf's Hope the master of Ravenswood, held the paper in his hand, and seemed irresolute. At length he spoke. "'Do not,' he said, "urge to farther desperation, a wretch who is already desperate. Enjoy your life while you can, and let me seek my death from another.' "'That you never, never shall,' said Douglas Ashton. "'You shall die by my hand.' or you shall complete the ruin of my family by taking my life. If you refuse my open challenge, there is no advantage I will not take of you, no indignity with which I will not load you, until the very name of Ravenswood shall be the sign of everything that is dishonourable, as it is already of all that is villainous. That it shall never be, said Ravenswood fiercely. If I am the last who must bear it, I owe it to those who once owned it, that the name shall be extinguished without infamy. I accept your challenge, time and place of meeting. We meet, I presume, alone? Alone we meet, said Colonel Ashton, and alone will the survivor of us return from that place of rendezvous. Then God have mercy on the soul of him who falls, said Ravenswood. So be it, said Colonel Ashton. So far can my charity reach, even for the man I hate most deadly, and with the deepest reason. Now break off, for we shall be interrupted. The links, by the seashore, to the east of Wolf's Hope. The hour sunrise, our swords, our only weapons. Enough, said the master. I will not fail you. They separated, Colonel Ashton joining the rest of the mourners, and the master of Ravenswood taking his horse which was tied to a tree behind the church. Colonel Ashton returned to the castle with the funeral guests, but found a pretext for detaching himself from them in the evening, when, changing his dress to a riding habit, he rode to Wolf's Hope that night, and took up his abode in the little inn, in order that he might be ready for his rendezvous in the morning. It is not known how the master of Ravenswood disposed of the rest of that unhappy day. Late at night, however, he arrived at Wolf's Crag, and aroused his old domestic, Caleb Balderstone, who had ceased to expect his return. Confused and flying rumours of the late tragical death of Miss Ashton, and of its mysterious cause, had already reached the old man, who was filled with the utmost anxiety, on account of the probable effect these events might produce upon the mind of his master. The conduct of Ravenswood did not alleviate his apprehensions to the butler's trembling entreaties, that he would take some refreshment, he at first returned no answer, and then, suddenly and fiercely demanding wine, he drank, contrary to his habits, a very large draught. Seeing that his master would eat nothing, the old man affectionately entreated that he would permit him to light him to his chamber. It was not until the request was three or four times repeated that Ravenswood made a mute sign of compliance. But when Balderstone conducted him to an apartment which had been comfortably fitted up, and which, since his return, he had usually occupied, Ravenswood stopped short on the threshold. ''Not here,'' said he sternly, ''show me the room in which my father died, the room in which she slept the night they were at the castle.'' ''Who, sir?'' said Caleb, too terrified to preserve his presence of mind. "'She, Lucy Ashton! Would you kill me, old man, by forcing me to repeat her name?' Caleb would have said something of the disrepair of the chamber, but was silenced by the irritable impatience which was expressed in his master's countenance. He lighted the way trembling and in silence, placed the lamp on the table of the deserted room, and was about to attempt some arrangement of the bed, when his master bid him be gone, in a tone that admitted of no delay the old man retired not to rest but to prayer and from time to time crept to the door of the apartment in order to find out whether ravenswood had gone to repose his measured heavy step upon the floor was only interrupted by deep groans and the repeated stamps of the heel of his heavy boot intimated too clearly that the wretched inmate was abandoning himself at such moments to paroxysms of uncontrollable agony. The old man thought that the morning, for which he longed, would never have dawned. But time, whose course rolls on with equal current, however it may seem more rapid or more slow to mortal apprehension, brought the dawn at last, and spread a ruddy light on the broad verge of the glistening ocean. It was early in November, and the weather was serene for the season of the year. But an easterly wind had prevailed during the night, and the advancing tide rolled nearer than usual to the foot of the crags on which the castle was founded. With the first peep of light, Caleb Balderstone again resorted to the door of Ravenswood's sleeping apartment, through a chink of which he observed him engaged in measuring the length of two or three swords, which lay in a closet adjoining to the apartment. He muttered to himself, as he selected one of these weapons, "'It is shorter,' let him have this advantage, as he has every other. Caleb Balderstone knew too well from what he witnessed upon what enterprise his master was bound, and how vain all interference on his part must necessarily prove. He had but time to retreat from the door, so nearly was he surprised by his master suddenly coming out and descending to the stables. The faithful domestic followed, and from the dishevelled appearance of his master's dress and his ghastly looks, was confirmed in his conjecture that he had passed the night without sleep or repose. He found him busily engaged in saddling his horse, a service from which Caleb, though with faltering voice and trembling hands, offered to relieve him. Ravenswood rejected his assistance by a mute sign, and having led the animal into the court, was just about to mount him when the old domestic's fear giving way to the strong attachment which was the principal passion of his mind, he flung himself suddenly at Ravenswood's feet, and clasped his knees, while he exclaimed, O oh, sir, O oh, master, kill me if you will, but do not go out on this dreadful errand. Oh my dear master, wait, but this day, the Marquis of A comes to-morrow, and all will be remedied. You have no longer a master, Caleb, said Ravenswood, endeavouring to extricate himself. Why, old man, would you cling to a falling tower? But I have a master, cried Caleb, still holding him fast, while the air of Ravenswood breathes. I am but a servant, but I was born your father's, your grandfather's servant. I was born for the family. I have lived for them. I would die for them. Stay but at home, and all will be well. Well, fool, well, said Ravenswood. Vain old man. Nothing hereafter in life will be well with me, and happiest is the hour that shall soonest close it. So saying, he extricated himself from the old man's hold, threw himself on his horse, and rode out the gate. But instantly turning back, he threw towards Caleb, who hastened to meet him a heavy purse of gold. "'Caleb,' he said, with a ghastly smile, "'I make you my executor!' And again turning his bridle, he resumed his course down the hill. The gold fell unheeded on the pavement, for the old man ran to observe the course which was taken by his master, who turned to the left down a small and broken path, which gained the seashore through a cleft in the rock, and led to a sort of cove where in former times the boats of the castle were wont to be moored observing him take this course caleb hastened to the eastern battlement which commanded the prospect of the whole sands very near as far as the village of wolf's hope he could easily see his master riding in that direction as fast as the horse could carry him the prophecy at once rushed on balderstone's mind that the lord of ravenswood should perish on the kelpie's flow which lay half-way betwixt the tower and the links, or sand-knolls, to the northward of Will's Hope. He saw him according reach the fatal spot, but he never saw him pass further. Colonel Ashton, frantic for revenge, was already in the field, pacing the turf with eagerness, and looking with impatience towards the tower for the arrival of his antagonist. The sun had now risen, and showed its broad disk above the eastern sea, so that he could easily discern the horseman who rode towards him, with speed which argued impatience equal to his own. At once the figure became invisible, as if it had melted into the air. He rubbed his eyes, as if he had witnessed an apparition, and then hastened to the spot near which he was met by Balderstone, who came from the opposite direction. No trace whatever of horse or rider could be discerned. It only appeared that the late winds and high tides had greatly extended the usual bounds of the quicksand, and that the unfortunate horseman, as appeared from the hoof-tracks, in his precipitate haste, had not attended to keep on the firm sands on the foot of the rock, but had taken the shortest and most dangerous course. One only vestige of his fate appeared. A large sable feather had been detached from his hat, and the rippling waves of the rising tide wafted it to Caleb's feet. The old man took it up, dried it, and placed it in his bosom. The inhabitants of Wool's Hope were now alarmed, and crowded to the place, some on shore and some in boats, but their search availed nothing. The tenacious depths of the quicksand, as is usual in such cases, retained its prey. Our tale draws to a conclusion. The Marquis of A., alarmed at the frightful reports that were current, and anxious for his kinsman's safety, arrived on the subsequent day to mourn his loss, and after renewing in vain a search for the body, returned to forget what had happened amid the bustle of politics and state affairs. Not so Caleb Balderstone. If worldly profit could have consoled the old man, his age was better provided for than his earlier years had ever been but life had lost to him its salt and its savour. His whole course of ideas, his feelings, whether of pride or of apprehension, of pleasure or of pain, had all arisen from its close connection with the family which was now extinguished. He held up his head no longer, forsook all his usual haunts and occupations, and seemed only to find pleasure in moping about those apartments in the old castle Which the master of Ravenswood had last inhabited. He ate without refreshment and slumbered without repose, and with a fidelity sometimes displayed by the canine race but seldom by human beings, he pined and died within a year after the catastrophe which we have narrated. The family of Ashton did not long survive that of Ravenswood. Sir William Ashton outlived his eldest son, the Colonel who was slain in a duel in Flanders, and Henry, by whom he was succeeded, died unmarried. Lady Ashton lived to the verge of extreme old age, the only survivor of the group of unhappy persons, whose misfortunes were owing to her implacability. That she might internally feel compunction, and reconcile herself with heaven, whom she had offended, we will not, and we dare not, deny but to those around her she did not evince the slightest symptom, either of repentance or remorse. In all external appearance, she bore the same bold, haughty, unbending character which she had displayed before these unhappy events. A splendid marble monument records her name, titles and virtues, while her victims remain undistinguished by tomb or epitaph. End of chapter thirty five. End of the Bride of Lammermoor.